Hello and welcome to this week's Politics in the Pulpit, our lectionary-based preaching resource brought to you by the Joint Public Issues team, designed to ask the provocative question of how and indeed whether politics should feature in our preaching this week. My name is David Main. I'm a Baptist minister based in Essex, and I am delighted to welcome another Essex-based friend onto the podcast this week, uh, Reverend Emma Nash. Emma is a Baptist Union accredited evangelist, currently seconded to the Methodist Church's evangelism and growth team. Emma is also the author of a book recently published by SCM uh, earlier this year called A Pastoral Theology of Childhood. This is genuinely my copy that is on my shelf here uh, behind me, and it's available in all good and appropriate uh, book purchasing uh, facilities. Emma, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. We're really pleased to have you on the podcast. Um, So politics and the pulpit. A natural partnership for you? Well, yeah. Um, I so it's kind of an interesting one. I am, for want of a better phrase, um, a proclamational evangelist. To cut a very, very long story, very, very short, um, my calling is very clearly to to speaking the gospel in words. However, I've had a strong social conscience since I was a teenager, and you know, become increasingly convinced that these are inseparable parts of mission, speaking good news, enacting good news, you know, seeing justice. Um, I would also say that um, during the um, time I've been a a minister, so I was ordained in 2013, so eight years now, um, I've experienced frequent marginalisation as a woman minister. Um, uh, Nothing too drastic, but a lot of what we might call microaggressions these days, a lot of subtle undermining, subtle marginalization. People quite often don't even realize they're doing it. And so I think when I preach, I'm also very aware of that power dynamic. That there may be people listening to me who don't think I should be up there. Um, and also reading um, reading the Bible as someone who doesn't, recognizing that I still carry a lot of privilege. Um, uh, you know, I don't have a disability. Um, uh, I am... Um, um, straight, white, cisgendered, you know, there's lots of privilege that I carry, I'm, I'm educated, uh, and yet um, my gender has sort of made me um, conscious of a lot of these power dynamics in scripture. Sometimes reading the Bible as a woman is uncomfortable. Mm. Yeah. yeah, very much so. I, I'm always struck um, in conversations I would have with Bible study groups and things like that. I said, I constantly say, um, if you've not found that difficult, I'm not sure what you've been reading because I think there are some passages which are really challenging. Um, we'll perhaps come on to some of that um, a bit later. And um, so, what are some of the um, political, social issues that are sort of big on your radar at the moment, either from your ministry context right now, or just you know from from living generally? You know, what are the big things for you at the moment? Well, at the moment, I'll, I'll just show you my T-shirt. I'm wearing my ah, yes. now my green Greenpeace T-shirt. Um, I've uh, a couple of years ago, um, I was in Lancaster for work, and I wandered into a bookshop because I had a bit of time, and I picked up um, Mike Berners Lee's book, There Is No Planet B, and I've been seeing a little bit about the you know school strikes for climate and. Um, the kind of youth movement that was going on and I thought you know I really need to read more about this I need to get more of a sense um and I read it and I was terrified and I just thought I need to do something about this 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 is this is an emergency this is a crisis um you know we've got to take action what can I do and I had this idea a couple of years ago um about 
wearing like a, a, a t-shirt you know with a kind of a slogan on it like for a whole year or something um well I haven't I'm not decided I'm not going to do it for a year but I've decided I've got my Greenpeace t-shirt I'm going to wear it until COP26 so um it's, I've been wearing it for 25 days now um the novelty has definitely worn off um, <laughs> but I'm going to keep going till 31st of October when COP26 okay. begins I've also become increasingly um I guess convicted would would be uh, the, the spiritual way of, of saying it, increasingly conscious um, of the injustice that's been done by the church to LGBT siblings, and um, very very challenged in recent years about my own complicity in the silence that they're offering is in local Baptist churches. We we don't that's not true of all Baptist churches, but in often we don't talk. Um, about the issue of sexuality because it's so emotive because they have such strong opinions and I've I've become increasingly uncomfortable with that silence and my complicity in that silence and it was an it was a great um, moment of uh, pride for me um, when the Methodist Church voted this summer to allow same-sex um, marriages weddings to take place in Methodist churches um, and that's that's something that makes me very proud to work for the Methodist Church. Mm. And it's uh... I was about to say national. I don't know if it's international or not, but it's National Coming Out Day today. In fact, as we record, really? I think the eleventh of October. Um, that may be a global thing, and I've reduced it to being UK specific. But it is uh, a day today. My Twitter feed has featured a number of interesting stories this morning. Um. So Emma, one of the things that we do is we always ask the JPIC team to uh, give us a little heads up on some of the um, stories, political stories of the week. Um, so I've got a, a few things here that might set a bit of a context um, in addition to what we've already mentioned. This week is Challenge Poverty Week in England and Wales. It was Scotland last week. I don't know why they don't all happen at the same time, but they don't. But in this week, uh, England and Wales, um, a week to challenge the prevalence and existence of poverty across the nation. Obviously, we've mentioned the continued build-up to COP26. We had the joint faith leaders and scientists statement from the Vatican last week. The um, the march or the pilgrimage heading up to Scotland from the young uh, network is is going really well as well. And obviously, we have the ongoing conversations about the cost of living, mm. um, which ties in, I guess, to Challenge Poverty Week in many ways, and lots of stories about food and gas prices over the weekend. Um, I'm sure I won't be the only one who's had emails from their energy supplier saying that everything's going up in recent days. And how does that then connect with obviously their universal credit uplift being removed? Um, the ongoing sort of simmering conversation about misogyny being a hate crime, um, which sort of came out of some comments at the Conservative Party conference last week. And then overseas, we've got the floods in China with nearly 2 million people displaced and the ongoing impact of climate change. And then uh, reading in recent days about the power outages in Lebanon. And it's quite a strong Baptist community in, in Lebanon and uh, had connections there for some time. And they've been without power, although I think it's back on this morning, but quite scary to find a whole nation without um, the means to turn the lights on. And Lebanon is a, a country um, smaller than London, which has uh, millions of refugees from surrounding nations and carries a great burden on behalf of the international community as well. So those are some of the things that are going on around our conversation this morning and may provide some helpful links with what we're going to be coming on to in our lectionary texts. Um, 
we'll think about that a, a bit now, really. We've got three texts, as we always do, um, and they're all from the same book or books that we were in last week, indeed the last two weeks. So we're in Job, we're in Hebrews, and we're in Mark chapter 10. Uh, Emma, where where do you want to start? Are there themes? Are there issues? Is there a particular text? Where would you be beginning? Well, I have to say, I did rub my hands with glee when I saw the Job reading. <laughs> okay. I really did. My first thought was the Da Vinci Code. Um, oh, just a, okay. a little bit of a niche kind of reference mm-hmm. there for anyone who's seen the film. Um, or read, no, I think it's only in the book. Anyway, um, but I was really, really struck by that that moment when God speaks out of the whirlwind. And and my my paraphrase of it, feel free to challenge this, David, but is, <laughs> you know, Job is in has suffered horrible tragedy, terrible heartache. His friends have been not very successfully trying to cheer him up or buck him up for, for, for chapters and chapters. And then God finally speaks and God says, where were you when I made the world? You know, and it, it's not comfortable. You, you kind of you no. could be forgiven for thinking, God, could you not that? I'm not sure how much that helps someone in in terrible suffering. So I was really, really struck by that. Yeah, it's a very interesting reading. I mean, Job's, as we've discussed the last couple of weeks on the podcast, is a, an interesting one to reflect on and preach, particularly if one wants to avoid uh, cliche. Um, and yes, I, I think this was a really the tone of this. I, I did so much is the tone with which you read it in your head. I think for me, I read this as um, the classic big booming voice in the sky sort of you can hear that tone to it and I I've been trying to read it this morning to hear if I can read it differently and sort of hear it spoken differently but I've not managed that very successfully I have to say it's kind of like God's great riposte to all of the mm-hmm. previous chapters of um, people not being very happy and there's just a sense of the greatness of God here isn't there? there's a sense of awe and God being above um that I think comes across quite clearly. Um, the other thing I, I thought that comes across here a little bit in Job is um, about God's sort of the sense of the meticulous care for creation. You know, there's a sense in which you know, the dimensions have been measured and God's put things in their place. And um, I thought obviously coming out of the season of creation, heading towards COP, there's definitely something in there too. Um, what do you... What do you make of the, the juxtaposition of the sense of perhaps God saying, I'm in control of this, and Job saying, well, that's part of the problem here because I'm not very happy with it. You know, how, how does that all sit together for you? And if you were preaching it, how would you, would you attempt to square the circle or would you just be saying, I'm not sure how we square this thing? How, does, how do we make it work? Well, one of the, the brief notes I made when I was uh, preparing for today was um, lean into the discomfort. Um, and that that's something I, I came across um, at Theological College um, through others preaching, um, particularly remember Beth Allison Glennie preaching on a very, very difficult Old Testament text and really not shying away from any of the painful bits. And that would tend to be my approach now. Um, you know, this is this this God seems to be taunting Job here. You know, this is almost like, you know, um, tell me if you know. Yeah, you don't know, do you? Um, and that's deeply uncomfortable. And yet there's another sense in which I kind of, God's response feels, does feel helpful and fitting in, in a sense. There, this idea of, um, well, I made the world and you didn't. So what makes you think that you understand everything? And I was re- really reminded of um, a book 
called, I think it's Face to Face um, by Frances Young, who's a Methodist academic and, and presbyter. She's retired now, as far as I'm aware. And she she um, wrote about her eldest son who has uh, profound and complex disabilities. Um, and she really, really struggled um, to come to terms with um, with his his needs and 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 um, him not having the life that she had hoped for him, um, and she she wrestles with that, and she tells this incredible story of of sitting in a chair, kind of trying to talk to God, or possibly even not consciously talking to God, and then sensing God saying, "It doesn't make any difference to me whether you believe or not." And then um, I had the the great pleasure to to meet Frances Young. She came to speak at Regents while I was there, um, and I asked her actually, "What did you what did you think God meant by that?" Um, because I, it sounds quite harsh. It doesn't make any difference to me whether you believe or not. Wow. Um, and what she said, or what I understood from what she said was, it was this sense of God is bigger than all this. God doesn't need me to justify God. Um, it, it was really, really fascinating. Yeah. So I'm just making a note there of the, of Francis's name, because that does sound really interesting. Um, and does the Job reading naturally link with the other two in any particular way? Were you able to draw any lines between them? Not that one has to, but. Well, what kind of jumped out at me in terms of themes was between Job and Matthew was this sense of, you know, we're not um, as clever as we think we are and we, we're not as in control as we think we are, you know. Um, so, so it's interesting that Jesus, when the disciples ask Jesus, can we sit at your left and your right? Um, he says, you don't know what you're asking. Um, and I seem to, to remember a, a, um, someone talking about, you know, the, the criminals crucified at Jesus' right and Jesus' left, you know, and, and that they, they had no concepts of what it would mean to be at his right and his left. So, so that, that kind of jumped out on me, this sense of that we don't know. And, um, and then, of course, Jesus is, is saying, those who want to be greatest among you need to be the slave of all. Um, so God is not just saying you're not as powerful as you think you are, but God, Jesus is kind of telling his disciples to embrace that, embrace powerlessness. Um, that that kind of struck me as an interesting connection. Mm, I like that. Well, let, let's um, perhaps follow that thread and head into our gospel reading. So we're continuing on with, with Mark uh, chapter 10. Um, I think it's a really interesting little moment in the gospel, given everything that's gone before. So there's this sense of sort of here's this new regime, this new social order, this new kingdom that's being established. And we've got, come to this the end of this section of teaching on sort of the renunciation of social power, really. And I don't know about you, but I read it. You, you can almost feel Jesus weariness that having said all that he's said and done all that he's done, this is what they're coming to him with. You know, so, all right, Jesus, we get that the old order is gone, but in the new one, can I have the best? It just, I don't know, the disappointment of it is almost palpable, I think, as, as you read it. Just the whole tone, again, of the passage feels exasperated rather than uh, bombastic or anything else. Hmm. Um, and there's just a sense in which I, I hadn't connected that with Job there, but just this sense of they really don't get it, James and John here in verse 39. And it says, oh, we can. Yeah, we do. We do. And they really, 
almost by demonstrating that they haven't really demonstrated that they understand quite what they've asked. But mm. uh, I did. I found myself wondering, and then wondering if I was, you know wondering how valid it was but I found myself wondering about thinking about some of the feminist feminist theologies of sin that I read um because <laughs> sounds very morbid but I have a particular interest in theology of sin um it's a subject of my dissertation and then um, uh you know some feminist theologians have have argued that sin is often characterized primarily as about pride it's about wanting to have power and influence and and that to um, repent means to to be humble um, and they've argued that that pride is not a woman's besetting sin. Now, obviously, that is a very, very sweeping statement. But I was really, I found myself wondering that, um, you know, because you could take this passage and say, oh, you know, as humans, we always want to lord it over people, don't we? Mm -hmm. And I wondered, is that true of everybody? But then I found myself thinking, well, um, you know, women can be just as manipulative and just as power seeking as men, but perhaps, perhaps sometimes do it in, in different ways. And I found myself thinking about mission, you know, um, when, you know, whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servants uh, and thinking about our our tendency to try to hold on to power in mission and in evangelism and the importance of of giving away power. Um, I was thinking about uh, when I first went to theological college and I was in my 30s and I you mentioned that I'm an accredited evangelist. And um, I had all these, I now see very naive views about living in college and evangelizing people because um, I went to Regents, which is a, a community, a really interesting, really mixed um, community with um, people studying all kinds of different subjects. Um, some people of faith, some not. And, um, and I thought I, I would be evangelizing people. And actually when I got there, I was really lonely. They were all a lot younger than me. <laughs> um, you know, it was no one's fault. It just, that, that was my experience. And I found myself, um, making some friends uh, and uh, particularly often found myself chatting to the international students. They tended to be a bit older and they often kind of didn't know too many people um, and realizing actually I, I am having all sorts of interesting conversations with people who wouldn't describe themselves as people of faith. But that's not that's not because I've gone out and been a great evangelist. It's because I'm lonely and I need friends. I just found that it's been a really interesting one to reflect on since about the place of power in mission. Really, I I hadn't particularly thought about it in terms of of gender in the way that you uh, bring in the the feminist ang angle to that, which is really interesting. But I, I had thought of that whole dynamic and how this is a particular temptation for some. I, I was thinking about it more in terms of um, to at class, for want of better mm -hmm. language. Actually, you know, some people just walk into a room and assume that they're in charge, and they assume that very naturally. And other people walk into a room and just assume that they're not. And, and just that, whether that's in education or, or in a variety of settings, and uh, people go to certain universities or certain schools, etc., uh, etc. Et and just, but I, and I think regardless of of almost what the, the particular spectrum is, that there is a truth here about this is a particular temptation for some more than others. I think this lording over. Um, yeah, really interesting mm -hmm. to reflect on that in terms of mission as well. Um, yeah, really interesting. One of the things I, I don't know what you made of this as well is how what they ask sort of ruffles the feathers of the other disciples here too. Um, I don't know what you made of it. I wondered whether that indicated sort of their response almost could be read as 
well, we're just sorry we didn't get there first. Actually, what they're cross about is that, you know, uh, James and John had asked the question rather than them. They don't seem, it doesn't, I don't read it as they're cross that the question has been asked. They're not frustrated with them for having got it wrong. They're frustrated with them for getting one over on them. Um, but I don't know, what did you, what did you make of that encounter? It, I didn't particularly notice that, but but now you post the question, it, certainly to me, it, it reads as, hey, why should you have the best seats? We want them, you know, you and because then Jesus, you know, goes into this teaching section, doesn't he, by saying, you know, the Gentiles lord it over people. It's not so among you. He's thinking, oh, great. I've got to explain this again. Um, yeah, I, I think I read it the same way you do. Hmm. And, and in which case, it's kind of an indictment on the whole community their sort of struggle for power and their desire to be the ones who who lord it over um i read somewhere in preparation for this morning it's probably in um ched myers binding the strong man which is obviously the go-to thing for mark in many ways it says leadership belongs only to those who learn and follow the way of non-violence who are prepared not to dominate but prepared to serve and suffer at jesus side um and that there is a sense you get in here, and I, I wonder if there's something with Job as well, probably with Hebrews too, just about the burden of responsibility that comes from leadership. Yeah, you, know, you may well have this experience too. I know plenty of people who want to be in charge, and then when they get there, they don't really know what they want to do with that. They don't particularly like the burden of being in charge, but the quest has been to be the one in charge. Um, I mean, there's certainly plenty of political analogies one could make about that the quest for power is is almost a thing in and of itself rather than um that being an element of service in order to get a different job done so it's sort mm. of thing to land is small yeah well, i mean i i do um in collaboration with others uh, a fair bit of working around leadership transformational leadership mm. as part of my role for the methodist church and um we 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 grapple with this tension uh, of, you know, how just to, to make a very, a very kind of sweeping statement that there's often a, a spectrum in views of leadership. On the one hand, you know, um, particularly Christian leaders will say, you know, we're servant leaders, we're um, we're pastors, shepherd, uh, shepherds of the flock. Um, it's not for us to seize power. And on the other hand, um, it, you know, you can have more of a got a dominating view of leadership is about making people do things they don't want to do and um you know so in 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 our work we do spend time kind of um, exploring that that tension what does it mean to to lead to be a servant leader and yet to get things done um i don't think there is a i don't think it's about jumping to one spectrum or the other and i also often um say to people people who are who are hesitant about the whole idea of grasping any kind of power as a Christian, I would tend to to say, well, you do have power. Um, we all have power and in different ways, and we just need to be aware of the power we have. So, for example, you know how in, in our Baptist context, if someone stands up in a church meeting and says something, there are certain people in the church where if they say something, everyone listens. Yeah. Now, they may be saying it out of, you know, the purest of motives. They may be a very deeply prayerful person and there may be nothing manipulated in that at all. And yet the fact is they do carry power. Very much so. Yes, there's sort of those unofficial elders of the church in a way that have that position. Yeah, very much so. And I was reading as well about a link that a couple of people were making between this passage and um 1 Samuel 8, where um, 
there's this desire to have a king like all the other nations, just to be like everybody else, rather than to live and exercise responsibility in a way that is distinct. And I thought if I was if I was choosing an Old Testament reading to go with this passage, I think I might have been inclined to go to one Samuel eight. Um, I can see that that sort of repudiation of of politics as normal, that desire for things to be to be different. Um, mm. What else strikes you in in this Mark passage? Just uh, having a look at the notes that I made. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. So a little bit controversial. <laughs> um, oh, we love we love controversial. Go for it. Okay. Um, she she hesitates. Um, <laughs> I was I found myself wondering if there's a risk of spiritualizing marginalization and lack of power. So you know, just to be blunt, if being the slave of all, if be, being well, it's an unfortunate word to use, isn't it? Um, it's an unfortunate translation. Mm -hmm. Slavery um, was an appalling thing, and it is is still sadly an appalling reality in our world today. Um, but just to move away from actual slavery, but just to think about marginalization and lack of power, you know, if it's good to be lowly, then why do we want to help people out of poverty and, and give people more power if powerlessness is a good thing? And I was, um, you know, and I thought, you know, am I over spiritualizing? And then I was thinking about um, the fact that ministers and other Christian workers, those who work for churches or Christian organizations can sometimes um, be struggling on very little money on very poor conditions a lot of people work for free or for housing only um and it can be seen as unseemly to 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 be demanding adequate pay or adequate housing you know because you're doing this for god you know why why are you talking about money it's very it can be very very tricky um yeah there you go there's my controversy for the morning i like that that's a thought that's going to fester um, is there a, a risk of spiritualizing marginalization and and that particularly links if we think of it being challenged poverty week and the cost of living stuff I think that really resonates uh, with question why are we trying to take people out of poverty if that's the place where we're all supposed to be for example yeah like that a lot um I thought there was quite a natural connection between the gospel reading and Hebrews um I'd almost be tempted just to read the Hebrews reading out and say well you know go figure um on on the sunday but uh, what did you make of hebrews hebrews 5 we're in this week i didn't david i didn't really make anything of it sorry i don't think i have anything controversial to throw in but i think um obviously it, it kind of is in two halves you've got the, the first bit where it's talking about the role of the high priest um, from the people. It was really interesting how this is emphasized here to represent the people. It's very much from within, which I think in all the JPIT uh, denominations would be something we would recognize um, uh, theologically in a number of ways. Uh, and the thing that I thought was interesting in that is this, this bit that we read here. I think it's verse three, verse two, maybe. Since the high priest is from the people is also subject to weakness that makes them deal gently with other people so i thought that was a really interesting that the within the role of the high priest um 
is this expectation of gentleness uh, whilst exercising that authority because you know there but for the grace of god go i i'm subject to weakness as well i thought that was a really interesting thing so the, the gentleness is picked out as a particular virtue that the high priest needs to have um but also in verse four it says that no one takes this honor upon themselves for they receive it when they're called by god so again we don't go seeking power um now if it calls and it comes and you have the opportunity to exercise that then gentleness needs to be part of it but um again there was none of this give me the best seat jesus you, know, you don't go looking to be the high priest a bit like i don't know if anyone ever said to you when you're exploring ministry you know only do it if you can't possibly conceive of doing anything else um and i think i get that now in a way i didn't when i started um mm. Yeah, I, that was certainly said to me, or also all variations of that. That um, sort of thing. My pastor at the time um, did his best to put me off in a, in, in a good way. Like he yeah. kind of really wanted to know that I would <laughs> have a realistic idea of what it might be um, to be a minister before uh, before going going for it. And th but there's there's something interesting there, isn't there, about um uh, about what any any Christian leader and being, I guess, some. Um, have felt that they need to be seen to be a good example and be seen um you know that showing vulnerability in the pulpit or vulnerability as a minister some i guess are more comfortable with it than others um i i always find myself having to walk this line between not wanting to treat the pulpit as therapy you yes. know <laughs> through my issues with god before everyone and um and yet recognizing that um my vulnerability is is something i share with the congregation is something through which god can speak um not not just despite which um and so over the years i've made very deliberate decisions to talk about mental health issues from the pulpit for example because i've suffered with anxiety since i was a teenager um and that and that kind of sharing that kind of thing can be incredibly powerful because it can give people um, permission to say, yeah, that's a problem for me too. And uh, and I and I've found that. Um, yeah, but it's also something we, that we have to be wise about, isn't it? Um, and and I love what Nadia Boltzweber says about you know preaching from your your scars, not your wounds. You know, if it's a gaping wound, if it's something that's still deeply painful to you, maybe maybe don't talk about it in a sermon. Um, and yet showing vulnerability um can be so helpful and healing for other people um i've also found myself you know as i i'm never quite sure what i think my ordination meant possibly okay <laughs> you know um you know as a baptist minister you know i believe that ministry is for all people i believe i was ordained when i was baptized um and you know so for many years baptists didn't ordain their ministers as you know it's a mm. relatively recent um thing that we've been ordaining people and I've never quite managed to resolve in my mind you know what how am I different from others um yeah. on a in the church um and I, I found myself wondering whether it's about living a Christian life in public and um, that I'm almost representing and I, I think think this is what Nigel Wright meant I, I read um, a great article by Nigel Wright about this and if if it may not be what he meant but what I thought he meant was that um that part of being a minister is representing the church to itself, living a Christian life in front of people. Um, 
and enabling people to work out their own Christian life by watching you live yours. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, and then they hit the sort of the second part of the Hebrews reading, um, basically then talks about how Jesus is the, the exemplar of how to make this work. Um, himself, uh, the glory of becoming the high priest, and then it talks about the order of Melchizedek. Um, and then it talks about how Jesus, like as the high priest, offered prayers and petitions um, for the people um, and that he suffered um, and became the source of eternal salvation um, for the people. Um, yeah, this idea that Jesus is one who prays for us, I think, is, uh, well, still, however many years I've been attempting to follow him, still is something that I find moving and, and humbling. Um, but yet there's a sense in which the way in which Jesus exercises power is thoroughly healthy and with within how it's supposed to be. I think there's, I mean, Hebrews is very good at emphasizing how Jesus is as it's supposed to be generally. Um, but you've almost got quite a direct um, link uh, here with that in, in Hebrews, which is where I think I would draw the connection with the gospel reading this week. And, and um, I, yeah, some weeks I get a sense in which there's one I probably wouldn't do much with, but this week I, I think I'd be referencing all three as part of, of what I'm doing and um, to talk about the way in which we exercise power and responsibility in these days is as relevant as it's ever been um, and has so much to say to some of the, the issues that we face at the moment. Um, preparing uh, for this week or looking at these readings, uh, would you be inclined to do anything different? Would you be preaching it in a particular way? Um, is there any sort of art or inspiration that sort of uh, comes to mind so far? I mean, I, I haven't got anything to offer in this way this week, but uh, we, we like to try and ask the question where we can. I, I um, it's a, something I said uh, towards the beginning, so apologies for the repetition, but I, I think, again, um, in preaching, it would be wanting to stay with the discomfort of yep. these passages particularly um job and mark were the ones i spent most time reflecting on and the ones i found most uncomfortable um uh, and not trying to make it all okay too quickly mm. um enabling people to to sit with that discomfort and see see how it makes them feel um and what god might say through that discomfort mm. um if focusing on job I think I'd probably be asked, inclined to ask a lot of questions um, and, and wonder about some answers rather than offering answers. You know, it, does God mean this? Could God mean that? You know, was God angry with Job? You know, what, what was, was God taunting Job? Uh, and kind of offering a few suggestions rather than trying to nail it down um, because I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of mystery there. Yeah, very much so. Uh, it's, Reminded me very much of um, of godly play, and and how this might be a sermon where I'd be asking a lot of wondering questions rather mm. than seeking to offer any answers. Um, and I think Mark's gospel lends itself to that quite well, actually. Of all the gospels, even there's a fantastic book called "Being Interrupted" by Al Barrett and Ruth uh, Harley, which I think has come out in the last year or so. And they actually do they have four chapters on bits of Mark's gospel, and at the end have sort of wondering questions about them. I think I'd, I would be inclined to 
take that sort of a lead uh, in this as well and just give space for people to think. Uh, so yeah, perhaps a bit of a godly play inspired uh, wondering this week. Great. Well, Emma, thank you for uh, coming on the podcast, for sharing with us this week. Really appreciate your wisdom and insight. Um, and uh, folks, this is the halfway point of this season. We've this is week six. We've got five more uh, to go uh, this uh, term. But thank you for being part of it. You can join the conversation on Twitter. Uh, we've got our own politics in the pulpit uh, Twitter page or on Facebook via the JPIT Facebook page as well. Uh, let us know what you're making of these readings. Let us know if there's obvious connections that you've made that we haven't seen or if anything that's been said today particularly strikes you. We'd love to hear um, how you're getting on with these passages uh, this week. But as you head into our uh, proverbial pulpits or perhaps even a literal pulpit where you are, uh, we finish with a blessing. So may the blessing of the God of peace and justice be with us. May the blessing of the son who weeps the tears of the world's suffering be with us. And may the blessing of the spirit who inspires us to reconciliation and hope be with us from now and into eternity. Amen. <laughs>